0: to Watershed Chats, presented by the Water People podcast in collaboration with Patagonia. Watershed moments are traditionally understood as a division or distinction between two phases. They can be turning points that define our shared history. Here, we sit down with experts and those having a go at building and dreaming new ways into fruition for a healthy and habitable future on planet ocean. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bunjalung and Kabi-Kabi nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay respects to elders, past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. Heath Josky is a free surfer committed to regenerating his homelands. In one of the driest parts of the driest continent on Earth, he's committed to rehabilitating his large coastal acreage that was stripped bare by industrial agriculture. Between riding some of Australia's most revered and underground waves and raising a young family, Heath is employing the principles of permaculture to bring balance back to his local coastal ecology.
1: Lauren, I wanted to ask you what it is you know about Heath Josky. How did you first hear of Heathy and um some of the stuff he gets up to?
0: I remember hearing something about an incredible wave at J Bay and I know he is basically fearless in the ocean, charges big Australian balmy waves. And um, what else do I know? You're a fisherman. And I also know that you played a huge part in the fight for the bite campaign here in Australia and internationally, that you went to Norway and um, spoke to the big oil company Equinor to let them know that Australians, specifically surfers and fisher folk like yourself um, in your community and around Australia were and continue to be opposed to um, oil exploration in the Great Australian Bight Marine Park. And what else do I know? You worked with Extinction Rebellion activists while you were in Norway. That's pretty cool.
1: And that he's the owner of a really amazing beard. Just
0: Hair farmer. Yeah, really amazing hair farmer. I got to see that for myself a couple of months ago before COVID set in. Um, we got to visit your place and... Meet your beautiful family and see how you're getting your hands dirty uh, in the soil there.
1: Yeah. So uh, hopefully that didn't make you too uncomfortable, Heathy. You still there and all right with us? <laughs> yeah, I've shrunken beneath my car seat, but I'm still here. yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I, you know, I know lots about you because we've shared water time for probably uh, more than a decade now. And I was just interested to hear what sort of snippets Lauren had seen and heard of you over the years. And and of course, it's the really amazing work you've done for the bite down there over the last you know couple of years that have really delivered your name to a lot of people uh, around the world around looking after this coastline, this country and communities. And so I was really keen for us to have a recorded chat and not really dive into the bite stuff because as we all know, uh, Equinor have pulled out and things have shifted there and hopefully that industry is, has really come to its senses and we can we can move on a bit and, and what I really wanted to dive into with you was the landscape where you live. Can you tell us a little bit about where you are in Australia? Yeah,
2: yeah. I'm um, I'm on the west coast of the Air Peninsula and just twenty K sort of south of um, Streaky Bay and yeah, it's a beautiful part of the country. It's a, it seems you know extremely unspoiled along the coastline. There's you know, hardly any homes or signs of development, and um, you know pristine oceans full of life and and fun surf. And um, and then yeah, the landscape it looks really barren, especially in the summer. Um, you know after they've harvested their crops and the fields just you know, go brown and dry right up and it, and it looks like a desert um, but then in the winter it, it rains quite a bit and it, it all becomes green and um, and the patches of bush that are left are, are really beautiful they're only you know low low, low sort of lying mallee scrub and um, bigger gums to the south of us but it's just uh, those little patches are beautiful and I imagine before you know 90% of the landscape has been cleared here for agriculture that a
1: lot of it would have been really lush you know beautiful bushland yeah so that's sort of what I wanted to dive into is the mallee bush there and some of the deforested uh, stats we have in Australia where we look at you know the fact that 25% of our rainforests in Australia have been taken out you know 45% of our open forests have been taken out and then yeah it's it's something like 30% of the mallee forests have been also taken out in the last two hundred years, and and that when we look at that landscape down there where you are, it's kind of a, a shifting baseline sort of story where it's like you know people of our generation and probably the generation before have been born into that landscape and thinking that that's just what it's naturally like, mm. and so what I what I have for reference with that is that you know I was born in New Zealand. And I've always loved how beautiful and green that country is. But the reality of it is that it's been stripped and there's no forests, you know, very little forests. Um, there's just pasture land everywhere. And there's this illusion that it's this beautiful, green, 100% pure country. But in reality, it's just been incredibly deforested and it doesn't have that many people. So it looks really healthy and spacious and beautiful. and And I can't help but feel that, Down there in South Odds where you are, it's a similar sort of story. You don't have the the greenery of New Zealand, but you do have that feeling that when you're driving along and you see very few cars and very little development, um, what you do see is just this barren landscape. Uh, When you're there, do you feel that? Do you look around and go, man, there's these tiny pockets of Mallee, but that's just this tiny, tiny amount of what once was there?
2: Oh, yeah, um, big time. Uh, Especially driving or flying when you're covering vast distances, it's the vast majority is being cleared. Like you know, there'll be thousand-acre paddocks with you know five or six trees in a row between them, spread out hundred metres apart or something ridiculous. Um, But it's you know sort of locally where my property is, I'm really lucky to have quite a bit of bush around me and areas that the natural resource management have brought back and are revegetating um and that's really nice but you yeah definitely you feel that too much has been cleared and um you know degraded over time over hundreds of years
0: I'm just interested to know what defines mallee forest what kind of what kind of ecosystem is it
2: um I guess the mallee scrub it's just a a low-lying gum and it doesn't really have a main trunk from the base of it it just branches straight out into all its branches and canopy from the ground so there's no major trunk and they they normally range between one and a half and eight or nine meters in height they don't get massive Uh, it's a rich sort of habitat for kangaroos and uh, wombats and emus and Lots
1: of different birds and you know, probably thousands of other species as well. Yeah, is it um is it something that is missing on the land that you're on? Yeah, no, for sure. My my
2: property has a couple of patches of mallee on it, and you know, it's great to have those. But since I've had it, you know the first year I was I was really um lucky to get lined up with uh, the cha- an organisation called the Chain of Bays and they helped fund uh, a lot of fencing and you know, the, over 135 kilometres worth of going up and down and seeding paddocks which was you know, a couple of hundred acres worth of um, paddocks that we've dropped native seed all throughout and then um, you know, provided me with some tube stock to get started that year and, and that set a really good uh, base just for things to start coming back and and you know since then I've, I've fenced off another paddock and and gone again uh, with more reveg and and as I save money and get more funding I'll continue to you know revegetate the property and in areas that stuff you know five years later is coming back really nice and you know quite thick lots of acacias and some small mallies and melaleucas and um, native pines coming up which is amazing, and there's also vast areas where nothing's come up as well. It's it's not all glory, but uh, there's been there's been a few patches which have definitely succeeding, and it's awesome to see the bush coming back. Uh, this morning, I, I woke up, and uh, me and Ziggy often wake up before sunrise and uh, get up and put a coffee on and make a bit of porridge and look out the east eastern window of the house, and it looks you know, straight back onto The hill of my property, which I'm focusing on revegetating, and now I can see a bit of a row of trees poking their head up above the ridge of the hill in the mornings on the sunrise. So, just little things like that is so super rewarding for me, and and it gets me charged up to keep on going and
1: and make that into a a forest. And so, why is it rewarding? Like, what's what is it about that feeling? You know, like you get a lot of um stoked down there from from surfing lovely waves and having open space and you know catching your food and stuff like that. Like what what's so good about that feeling of seeing some of those trees grow?
2: Well it's the the joy of like like you were saying, these paddocks that you know on the surface, especially throughout the summer, they they just look lifeless and completely bare and, you know, um full respect to all the farmers around here I respect what they're doing but you know a little bit of life comes up in the summer and then they'll spray a herbicide on that to kill any life before the next crop goes in so it's all about you know suppressing any life and then giving it the nutrients they need to grow their crop when when they put it in but it's just a you know a bare hill that you can't really imagine trees or you know bushland coming back on and, and to see it start Coming back, especially when you know, I want to live up on the hill one day and and live amongst the trees and enjoy their shade and their kindling and you know, all the other benefits their clean air they're going to provide and and then pass it on to my children as well. That's uh, I think uh, well I've been thinking about it and it's probably the best thing I can really do in my lifetime is to grow as many good trees as many trees as I can on my property and and that's probably going to be the best input i can
1: i can give really (laughs) yeah that well that's a neat thing about this point in time where you obviously did a lot of work over the last year or so with the fight for the bite issue and going abroad and doing you know stuff elsewhere but it was it was all linked to the bite and everything but then really zooming back in on your feet in the ground there and uh and basically localizing on the extreme level, like literally you're talking about the space you inhabit and rehabbing that. So, so where does food come in? Like you've, you know, it's wonderful to regen these places that have been sort of uh, dusted by industrial agriculture. What about your food? Like is, is there any food systems as a part of what you're doing on that land? Yeah, for sure. That's a,
2: a massive part of it as well. And uh, one of my biggest goals in life is to create a, a productive area in my garden that's uh, it's got it's loaded with fruit uh, most of the year if not year round and you know, providing abundant veggies and and eggs from the chickens and ducks and and I would like to expand on that in time and and grow on it but you know, I spend most days in the garden working in the in my veggie garden or you know, mulching and fertilizing fruit trees or planting new trees or building you know uh, more structures to support the garden or with the chickens or ducks it's it's a huge priority and the you know, it's only recently that I've been looking into more and more of the regenerative agriculture movement and the way that they're using a, um, a, a vast you know number of different species of animals to work in sequence with each other to, to all build up the soil and all work in harmony to to enrich and, and build in that organic matter and that's something I would like to experiment with more in the future but at the moment it's, you know, I've got my ducks that free-range the orchard every day and they keep on top of snails and fertilise everywhere with their droppings and then I you know, drain their pond once a week and that's just a incredibly rich fertigation to spread over some lucky fruit trees and um, you know, I'm, I'm just getting getting a lot better at composting my chicken manure with the right amount of horse manure and the chicken bedding to get it all hot and break down nicely. You know, I feel like I'm still in my sort of primitive stages of learning and growing the garden out here but it's, you know, it's one of my major focuses and something I want to learn a lot more about and progress with into the future.
0: Heath, I'm interested to know, where did your passion for working the land come from? I know for Dave, he's also going through a bit of a um, rekindling of his love for our land and regenerating and using permacultural concepts to work plots of our space. And a lot of that comes from a period of about six or eight months or maybe a year when he and his family lived on a farm in New Zealand did you have formative experiences like that that are drawing you back to working the land and living on the land with your family? Yeah,
2: definitely. I grew up on a five-acre property uh, just inland from Valor Beach, uh, half an hour south of Coffs Harbour, and uh, it's beautiful, um, subtropical, you know, beautiful, lush bush there. And we had a, a really productive orchard and and um, veggie gardens as well, and it was all on a on a decent slope and my mum did it all. She just loved it and, you know, would spend every spare minute of the day she had out in the garden. Dad didn't get out there at all, really. He liked eating it, but he was just interested in shaping <laughs> boards and, um, you know, going surfing and, and looking after us in other ways, building especially. But, um, yeah, the garden was mum's deal and and she's always – Loved it, and you know, it's some of my best memories growing up is getting up in the morning and going and picking guavas and grabbing some bananas off the uh, off a hand of bananas that we picked a few days ago and grating them up into this mush and adding, um, you know, oats and peanuts. And that was our breakfast that we had for like three or four months of the year in guava season. And then, you know, going out and just picking, you know, buckets on buckets of persimmons and just gorging for, you know, weeks on end. At, they were you know along with surfing the best memories of my youth so that's something i want to i want my kids to be able to enjoy and and you want to give your kids you know the the best healthiest food that you can and yourself and down here it's pretty hard to find organic produce at all let alone local So, you've sort of got to grow it your own, really. There's there's a few people getting into it, and uh, they've sometimes got a little bit to spare, but there's not, you can't live on an organic diet from local
1: produce. It's just not possible at the moment. You've got to grow it yourself. So, um, yeah. And so that's the result of not so much isolation. I wouldn't say it's not the result of being a kind of semi remote community, it's more the result of industrial agriculture dominating the the space down there isn't it yeah oh, for sure no, we have got a um a
2: friend down at down the coast who inspired me on my property here to to build a water catchment um, a cheap way of just catching as much water as as we can but without getting into the catchment he was just using this water to You know, grow lots of veggies, and he had a good roadside stall, and he was selling them at the caravan park, and you know, planning on putting in um, these uh, almond and pistachio trees, and getting a bigger orchard of that. And that inspired me to think, okay, it's not just you know uh, these little. There's a couple of little oasis areas in the on the bite, like down at Bramfield, where there is you know great orchards already happening, but these areas that look a bit more lifeless and yeah, they don't, they're not necessarily the, the oasis, but it's still possible to grow lots of amazing food. And yeah, that's right. That's just every paddock at the moment, you know, broad scale farming.
1: Yeah. And what about Tim and Anna being an inspiration? You know, that their garden for me down there is one of the most inspiring gardens I've ever seen. And especially in a space where you have, you know, thousands and thousands of acres of sort of monocrop. And then you have this tiny little plot that they have, which is just busting out so much biodiversity and so many different types of food for them and their their family of friends. Have they set a bit of a benchmark for you and others down there on that coast?
2: Ah, uh, well, their benchmark is astounding. Um,
1: <laughs> it's,
2: yeah, they're, they're just amazing that their whole lifestyle is you know, the most sustainable and Eco-friendly, I know of anyone living, and they also were a driving force of the fight for the bite campaign right from the get-go. But yeah, their garden is incredible. They've got such amazing variety of of all the different fruits, and their vegetable garden's always just full to the brim. It's a little bit different to me because they've got incredible groundwater, only a, a couple of meters below the soil, and they're they're in a lot richer, uh, more red sort of bit of clay. So it holds the water a lot better than what I've got. So they've, they've got a couple of other things sort of working on their side a, a bit more. But, you know, clay isn't always better than my sort of sandy base that I've, I've got. But um, definitely a massive inspiration.
1: But my challenges are a bit different to theirs. Mm. Is there a network down there? Like, do you all sort of. Um, talk or, or, you know, meet up and trade sort of uh, ideas or even trade things, you know, if someone's collected a, a bit of seaweed that's washed up from a storm or, or just anything like that, is there, is there any kind of growers network or just sort of friend network down there that helps this become a little bit more attainable?
2: Um, there's definitely a, a friend network that are, are getting into it more and more. Like, um, I've been trading, you know, figs for herbs and, um, whatever other seeds it is, but you now I've had an excess of figs and carob trees that, that I've been trading with, with other local gardeners and, and there's a couple that are right into it. Uh, as far as, you know, getting advice and being able to call on someone for help, I, I always call Tim and Anna when I, I need to question something that's happening in within the garden or with my flock of chickens or ducks and, they're always just got a wealth of knowledge that they're more than happy to, to share. Uh, and I see that this community of local and smaller scale organic growers is growing more and more, and it, it, I think it's going to become something even up at, at Streaky. You know, Down at Port Lincoln, there's, there's been um, roadside stalls that have popped up in the last few years, and I, I chatted with a lady who runs... A great one there and she just said that the stall's going amazing it, she can't keep up it's, it's going off people love to eat healthy food and it's the same here people want to eat good food and they're really interested in turning their space into a productive space and you know, within my friend group there's a lot of us that are that are getting right into it at you know different levels but I think it's it's not really a, a major thing at the moment it um you know, there's no community markets or things like that to be meeting and swapping produce regularly uh it's something that i think will become more regular there is one at at christmas and one at easter time that we have and there we do see organic sort of
1: local produce coming to that but yeah not often enough Mm, this is a this is a really exciting area i i I think in terms of people growing food and and sort of working with each other in our area so northern New South Wales there's growers networks popping up that use you know apps on your phone to to know what each other are growing and perhaps you know that your space is really good for growing one type of food like you just said you got carob and and figs you know and someone down the road might have a a glut of of grapes or something else going and and there's a, a way for us to know what each other has in surplus and how we can trade that. And so it's kind of an exciting time right now, given that we can do the farmer's market thing, we can meet monthly or weekly or bi-monthly or whatever it is every Easter and Christmas, like you said. But actually, there are these new sort of ways for us to know about each other and to support each other with what we're growing. And and I reckon that would be something that could really take off down there, considering, um, you know, you might not want to drive all that way just to chance what might be at the the market in Streaky or at Lincoln or something. And if you can actually speak with each other about what you're growing, then that sort of forges more relationships and a bit more of a, a community because the way I see it down there, I would way rather go to your garden or Tim and Anna's garden than stop at a servo and get, you know, a soggy old veggie spring roll or something. yeah. <laughs> you might be different you might love those soggy spring rolls at that at that servo but or or stop at your place I'd rather get a squazza at your place <laughs> one of Jos's squazza's which is a renowned food um Lauren's looking at me like what the hell is a squazza
0: squash? <laughs> squash she
1: says <laughs> um, but you know like it, it's pretty just sort of Common sense and and logical to to choose that homegrown sort of goodness there. So just to be clear, when you got on your property, what could you eat from that space? Oh, you could
2: you could eat the Lincoln weed if you're really desperate. It tastes pretty horrible. <laughs> uh,
1: is, that, is that like uh, a roadside sort of rocket or something?
2: Yeah, it is a little bit like rocket. I, I don't really like rocket at the best of times, and this is like a really um, even more hectic mustardy peppery rocket there's a there's other bushes called nitroberry bushes that you can you can eat their berries in summer which i have gorged myself on a few times but yeah that was that was it i guess and the farmer was growing barley and, and rotating that with sheep um, that's yep. what the majority of the paddocks were used for with those couple of small little areas of scrub fenced off
1: Mm and so and what's on the menu now from your space well
2: the fruit trees are are young so we're not reaping the benefits of all of those just yet however our biggest fig had a great season this year we we were eating them every day for a a few months it was such a long harvesting season i'm so excited about that and you know we've i've put in another 12 this year so we'll have 14 figs in the orchard and half a dozen stone fruit we've got an orange a lemon a lime and a mandarin um, a couple of pomegranates we've got 18 olives uh, and a few mulberries half a dozen grapes got lots of carobs probably over 50 carobs that i've put in this year which is really excited about the potential of of carobs on my land Uh, you know they don't need a great amount of water they are really drought hardy and and they're prolific bearers and so useful for humans and livestock and um you know fire break wind break um, i read some i read a quote in a diggers club magazine that said one carob tree can produce uh, as much food as an acre of wheat which i thought was pretty incredible so wow yeah putting in lots of carobs and I'll keep on growing them they've they've been so much fun um propagating them from seed it's quite been quite a process that the fella I bought them off was just so open with his information and I you know, spent hours on the phone chatting with him and um you know I had to scarify the edges of the seed on a bench grinder with, with holding the seed with needle nose pliers and then soak them for a few days and then drain them and give them a rinse once every day for a few days after that to get them to shoot. And then they just take off their tap roots, you know, uh, 15 centimetres down within a couple of weeks, just on its way. So, yeah, we've got all of that. And then we've got our chickens and ducks, which uh, I've got uh, 17 hens and three roosters and one drake duck and seven girls ducks. And... Yeah, our veggie gardens, we've always got spinach and lettuce and um, still got some basil in there and a few tomatoes at the moment and lots of kale and lots of herbs. We've got a herb spiral that works great with our rosemary right up the top. You know, it's spiralling down through sage and oregano and thyme and lemon balm and all the way down to a couple of different mints at the bottom and, yeah, cucumbers are just finishing up. got heaps of pumpkins, got a... Uh, Probably some other things. We've got blueberries, strawberries. Yeah, it's go on and on. <laughs> Pretty, it, don't really realize how much it's got until you start talking about it.
0: Well, that is an abundant uh, market you have there. It sounds like a lot of time and care goes into the way you're working your land. Wouldn't you rather be in the ocean?
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, nah. Not really, not at the moment. I I've, I've, I've had such a blessed life, I've got to surf so much. I've like really binged hard on surfing for a couple of decades there, and I still love surfing so much and I I can't, it, you know, the highs I get from specific rides in the ocean, uh, you know, they're unlike anything else in this world, but for me on a daily basis, it's more important to keep on seeing Um, me moving ahead on the property and and moving yeah moving towards that that finished product that I've got in my mind of what I want this to be and I can still I still get a couple of surfs a week and get some really fun waves and and get stoked and then yeah I'm just happy to be on my farm and in the garden with the family.
1: Yeah well we can hear you loud and clear there on on that one I think the last couple weeks for us has been a a, like a dream scenario of, you know, seeing a, a swell and a storm sort of coming, you know, perhaps five or six days out and knowing that we're going to get really surf heavy, especially because both of us are, are real surf rats and and our little guy Minnow loves the water too now. But, but, you know, getting into the garden, getting into the beds and getting things sort of ready for a week or so of neglect because a swell <laughs> is coming. And then you know that swell is finished now, and we've got perhaps a week between this this moment and the next swell. So you know, back into the the gardens and the orchards we go. Um, is that a kind of dance that you just love too? Because you know we're we're both of a similar age, and and I can just hear loud and clear how enriching and how satisfying the whole garden experience is. But but don't you just think they fit together so well, surfing and gardening? Like it really. They're really complimentary? Uh, they can be, for sure, yeah. Oh, they... okay. <laughs> Interesting. Do you not feel that?
2: Uh, well, yeah, I I'm not sure. I feel like if I didn't surf I'd I would have learned heaps more about gardening probably ten years ago. <laughs> and been a bit bit further ahead of where I am. I do feel like surfing gives you um, you know, a, a really special connection with nature that is hard to find elsewhere, you know, to to be able to just, you know, step into completely natural realm and, and find such joy and be scared absolutely shitless and, and um, you know, to feel all these emotions that you rarely sort of get on land and to, you know, understand the power of nature and the beauty of it is something that probably carries into into working with the land. I haven't really thought about it that much before, to be honest, but... Uh, that works with it. And also if you take a bag in your backpack, you can grab a bit of seaweed and and that can work too. Get a bit of both, get a surf and some seaweed.
0: Does, does the idea of progress, I mean, I guess you sort of spoke to it earlier, but with surfing, kind of one of the most beautiful things about surfing is you align with this pulse of energy, you ride, you know, to the sand if you're lucky and you've got nothing to show for it. You paddle out and you do it again and again and again and again and we're all committed to probably – doing that and indulging or overindulging on that sensation for the rest of our lives. But with gardening, with um, you're building a relationship with the land, you get to be part of a system where you can see progress.
2: Yeah, and surfing, uh, it's amazing, but it feels like a bit of a selfish act at times. Like, you know, we're not, you you could spend your whole life surfing, but you're not really giving back a great deal potentially in other areas that you could be. Um, yeah, when you're gardening, it's, you feel like you're achieving something that's really worthy, whether it's providing food for the family or you know, seeing a paddock return to bush, whatever it is, or just planting one tree or one herb. It, it, that's something that's going to grow. It's going to provide you with food or shelter or whatever it is. But it, it's really satisfying and tangible thing that that is rewarding,
1: you know, for a long time. That's so cool because I, I um I, I often really love and celebrate the fact that surfing doesn't produce anything, you know, like it's just this thing that's, it's just a feeling that we feel and that we create from the experience. But then, in the same moment, it is actually really nice, like you're saying, to. Do work on the land with the land in conversation with the land that is something you can show another person, you can give to another person, you can support your family or others with. And I guess for me, that's this that's actually that feeling of the two being really complementary for each other that I was trying to get to before, but I didn't really realize until you were just saying that, and and that that's a nice balance you know it's it's nice to go and do something totally superfluous and purposeless like surfing after you know working in mm. an ecological space like on your land so yeah. um it's cool just to hear that you're doing that in another ecosystem Um, than what we have here you know it's a it's a totally different landscape down there what's the future hold have you got any you know really big big plans or are you just sort of growing from one stage to the next with this work yeah
2: i've got a big wave pool on the go just getting getting the plans drawn up and gonna get that the dam here and yeah every bit of water i catch i'm just going to put in that and that's perfect. Yeah, that's oh, you're so in line with the
1: rest of the surfing world. Um, that's amazing.
2: No, no. Um, yeah, it's just to keep moving in the direction that I am. Um, but I, I feel like I've thrown myself right into the, the deep end in a way since I've bought my property um, with not much experience or education in gardening or building or land management. And I've got had a hands-on education in my five years of owning the property, but I'd actually like to do some study now as well, and and um, you know hopefully get Addie Jones down here to have a look, and um, some other people just that might you know see something in the landscape that I haven't. I'd love to incorporate swales into my hill, and and to dam up all the runoff from my driveways and be able to use that for irrigation um you know i'd love to be to be producing bulk biologically rich uh liquid fertilizer that i'm spraying out on my paddocks and you know growing beautiful feed to graze animals through there's lots of things i'd love to do but it's a a long process and it's all time and money to get there but I'm, i'm chipping away bit by bit and yeah it's all time and money and water for me so water is one of my biggest challenges and uh, like I said with earlier mentioned my water catchment that's been a real game changer you know being able to just build this sort of massive roof out of old tin and old fence posts so for really cheap getting a, a huge amount of catchment area to to feed um you know to catch pro- around 100,000 litres a year and, and that'll Irrigate my fruit trees I've got now, but you know, for if, if wanting to grow into bigger and better things, well, I'll, I'll have to get creative and how I'll capture that water and, and use it wisely.
0: This episode of Watershed Chats is presented by Patagonia, whose purpose driven mission is to use business to protect our home planet. Thanks to our sound engineer and musician, Shannon Zoll-Carroll, and artist-in-residence, Chris Mearshiro. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. Learn more at waterpeoplepodcast.com.